Today's dead idea, serfdom. The legal condition of being tied to the land you live on. Okay, so it's like this. Imagine if your apartment landlord owned you, made you work for him or her, and you couldn't go further than the parking lot without their permission. That's basically what serfdom is like. You're a hair's breadth away from a straight-up slave. And serfdom was common in Western Europe during the late Roman and medieval periods, but we are focusing specifically on Russia in this series, which came late to the game of serfdom. Just as serfdom was dying out elsewhere in Europe, Russia was like, hmm, serfdom, you say? Tell me more. <laughs> and it's like, why? So that is what we are going to be talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who got really big into 80s music just as it was dying out elsewhere. Of course, it's back now, though, isn't it? So, you know. I don't know. The revival's probably dying out now, too. So. Never. Well, I hope serfdom's not going to have a revival. I don't know if systems of exploitation are cyclical like that. <laughs> it's there should be a horrible know. surf music pun somewhere in this. But. Yeah. Uh, I'm BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. With me once again are my co-hosts for the day, Anna. You can also call me Brandon. <laughs> that would be confusing. Yes. <laughs> and Nick. And I just want to thank you, Brandon. Um, you have been an excellent master. You're drunk all the time and beat me, which is what I expect. And how many hours do I need to record for you before we get to do our own show? <laughs> Similarly, I'm developing blisters from all of this podcasting. Um, I don't mean to take a day off, but... Hey, hey, you guys watch it or I'll deny your right to marry. No, please, sir. <laughs> uh, I like being the master in this setup. <laughs> you guys are the serfs. This well, you mentioned the weird. control issues. So. Yeah, yeah. Right. and we're in the podcasting dungeon again where all the lights obscured. <laughs> I don't think all it's right. historical that serfs were kept in dungeons. No, I'm just saying with the master, there's Unlike a bunch us. of unfortunate implications. Yeah. They did get flogged a lot, but anyway, we'll get into that. Anyway, listeners, we have done something special with our mics today, something new, and uh, it was not cheap, but we're trying. We're trying to finally solve the issue that many people have pointed out that it's difficult to hear all of the co-hosts equally, so hopefully we've got it now and we didn't just make it sound weird, but we'll see. We'll Keep see those subscriptions coming and Brandon will be able to afford a real nout and not merely <laughs> the edge of his belt. <laughs> exactly. I can flog you properly then. And then you get a good, good audio of that happening and then that's, you know, more for you, I that's, guess. That's just bonus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you everybody who has contributed to our cause on Patreon, without which we could not have done this. And everything that we get goes right back into the show. So um, thank you again. Keep it coming. We will make the show awesomer and awesomer, thanks to you. Uh, and you also get awesome perks, like the portraits. So there you go. Visit us on Patreon. All right, enough already about that. Let's get to the topic for today, serfdom. So Nick and Anna. Hello. Yeah, hello again. What? What? What is up with this owning people thing? It seems to be a recurring element throughout history, including our own history, right? America had slaves, and uh, the hypocrisy is going to be flowing freely through this whole series here. Like you do. Yeah. So what, what's up with this whole owning people thing? 
the garage is really hard to clean out sometimes. <laughs> so we need a slave or a serf to clean out your garage? It's just like there's a whole pile of nails back there, and then there's leaves on top of the nails. <laughs> you don't want to do that yourself. I'm just saying. Who does? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we'll start by saying that American slavery was straight up, hands down, worse than Russian serfdom. So there's that. And we'll be making a few comparisons along the way, kind of interesting comparisons between American slavery and Russian serfdom, which started at about the same time and ended at yeah, about the, the same time. Yeah, the chronology overlap is kind yeah. of spooky. Mm. It's really weird. And it was, uh, they were both on the fringes of the European world, the, the East in the case of Russia and the West in the case of America. So kind of strange parallels in that respect. Mm. The leader emancipating both got assassinated. Tsar Alexander II got assassinated? He did. He did, really? Yeah. Okay. By the way, here's how this series is going to go. Um, we're going to do it as another epic-length monster series like the Geisha episodes were. We had so much fun, we're just going to keep riding that train. <laughs> and we won't always be able to do this because some ideas just don't have enough to go on. But we're going to do it as long as we can as we're just we're having fun. So today is part one. We're going to talk about what is serfdom itself and then we're going to get into the rise of serfdom and how in the hell it managed to come about in russia when it was dying everywhere else it was just that was really fascinating to me so we're going to talk about that today we'll go on for episodes and episodes the next two months so you'll get plenty and plenty on russian serfdom and it's going to be fun plenty of exposure to our horrible jokes and repeating <laughs> terrible jokes so anyway today we're focusing on serfdom itself and how it came about also i want to say from the start that there was a great deal of variety in Russian serfdom, and it actually varied quite a bit region by region. And there were large swaths of the Russian Empire that never got serfdom ever. Like Siberia never had serfs. The Caucasus never had serfs. And the far north was another one too, wasn't it? Yeah, was... yeah um, it was mainly around like the part you think of as the European part of Russia west of the Ural Mountains, basically. Yeah. Was and it was more intensive in the steppe than in the forest, because it makes more sense in agriculturally productive areas, too, no? Yeah, well, we'll get into I... that. We'll okay. get into that. Yes and no. Okay. Huh. Okay, so anyway, the point is, listeners, don't take everything that we say as, like, true uniformly. It's not uniform laws. We're talking about, like, generalities and trends. All right, let's get into it. So, first of all, what exactly is this dead idea? What is serfdom? Do you guys actually know the legal defining characteristics of serfdom? You're tied to a specific land that's managed by a specific lord, and you don't really own it, and you owe him service. Yep, that's about it. Yep, so a, a slave, the way we think of it in, like, American slavery, is like you're straight-up chattel. You're like an object owned, and, you know, the owner can do whatever you whatever they want with you, and buy and sell you, etc., and... Uh, a serf is tied to the land that the owner owns. So in the end, it's it's just about the same thing. <laughs> they could do just about as much with you as they could with a slave. They can buy and sell you and stuff. But the point is, a serf is tied to the land. So if you're born on a certain estate, you can't leave that estate. The owner of the estate owns you by by virtue of the fact that they own the estate. It's kind of like fine legalese that, that define, that distinguishes a serf from other kinds of slavery. Yeah. 
But that's a good point when you do read earlier Russian novels where that sort of thing comes up. It's usually much more, you go to a village, you bring a document, you get a lawyer, you go to the bank, you fill out a lot of paperwork, as opposed to the classic picture of you go to a slave market and pick out that hunk of meat there standing on a pedestal. It's, yeah, exactly. It is kind of a different image. Yeah, it's a different image. It kind of gets to the same place in the end. Yeah, so interesting differences there. Um, in the case of Russian serfdom, the landlord was usually a noble, but could possibly be a monastery. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or in certain periods could even be a prosperous peasant. And you owe to your landlord dues, and that could take one of two forms. Either you paid your dues in kind, meaning like grain or you know, animals or products that you make, um, and that is called abrok, um, so that's dues in kind, where you basically pay rent, kind of, to your landlord. Or you could pay labor, called barshina, and that's where, like, you have to work in the landlord's fields. Usually it was like you work the landlord's specific fields three days a week, and then you have your own fields that you can work three days a week and then rest on Sunday. And when I say your own fields, it's like with air quotes, because even your own fields are actually owned by the landlord, and you just kind of are given the right to work them and live off the proceeds from those fields. Meanwhile, you have to work the landlord's fields as well, and all of those proceeds go to the landlord, and that's just what you have to do. Hmm. So there's either obrok or uh, barshina, the labor. And this kind of varied by the different regions, and this gets into what you were talking about, Nick. Um, because in the south and southeast, those are very good agricultural regions. There's a part south of Moscow called the Black Earth Center mm -hmm. that was really good for, for growing. And on those, in those areas, mostly what the landlords would demand would be the barshina. You'd have you work in the fields. But to the north around Moscow and Novgorod and other kind of parts, there, that's called the non-Black Earth Center. <laughs> Specific. You know, very I know, yeah. very creative <laughs> name for it. The, in the non-Black Earth Center, it wasn't as good for growing. There was a lot more, like, kind of trade and industry there. And so typically, the landlord would just demand obrok from you. And however you made your money or, you know, products or whatever, you would just pay your obligations out of that. And is that something that would usually be paid in money or paid in it, not some kind of produce? Produce. Yeah, so it would be like grain, it might be like um, wool, or whatever it is you're producing, basically. Eventually the landlord's house would just fill up with crates and crates and crates of <laughs> tiny nesting dolls and tacky souvenirs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I have my serfs entirely creating tourist items. <laughs> Actually, that sounds a little creepily uh, similar to today's situation. It's a lot of sweatshop areas. No, I, you yeah. may pay me I in tchotchkes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And this is how the Franklin Mint started. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. So, a few more things about serfdom in Russia. You're a serf by birth. Serf status is um, inherited the moment that you're born. And you cannot leave the estate, not even temporarily, without getting special permission from your landlord. Um, and that might involve a considerable fee called an exit fee, um, where you have to pay just to even go off the estate. Do you have to get it specifically from uh, the landlord, or can you get it through a proxy of his? Or Well, that's an interesting question, mm. because 
it's basically all proxy stuff. Really? Yeah. So it's a very different setup than what you think of from like the American plantation with slaves. In the American plantation with slaves, you have like a plantation owner that like lives on the plantation, has maybe like 20 slaves or something, and like knows them face to face and interacts with them relatively often. In contrast to that, in Russia, it was almost like you had these huge like agricultural corporations and the landlord was really just like the way, 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 way high up person, like the CEO that you almost never, ever met. In fact, in many cases, you never met. They might not even ever visit the estate. They'd be off in uh, St. Petersburg or Moscow or off on military campaign or something, and they just see the proceeds of the estate. And they'd have many different estates and they might own thousands or even tens of thousands of serfs in total and they'd have this huge bureaucracy to administer all of these estates and the estates wouldn't necessarily be contiguous either it would be a patchwork of things exactly it's not necessarily all in one place even and uh the people that you interacted with if you were like a serf working in the field would be sort of the next serf up on the totem pole in this bureaucracy and a lot of them were serfs even the ones who were in the the administrative roles. Um, Mm. There also were free peasants, and we'll get into that in a second, what that meant. But many of the people who are basically your boss that you hate are also serfs, including the ones that flog you with a (laughs) knout, which is a kind of like, almost like cat of nine tails that has multiple whips on it and might have like metal bits or knots in it to make it hurt and lacerate the flesh even more. So... Not fun stuff. <laughs> Not unless you're into that. <laughs> unless you're into that, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm a bad surf. <laughs> naughty, naughty surf, Anna. <laughs> a naughty, naughty surf. A naughty oh. surf. Oh, no. Oh, we're going to have to cut that one out for sure in editing. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, this is a Patreon exclusive. <laughs> uh, okay. So anyway, um, also, your marriage is subject to the approval of the landlord. Not only that, but also to the village commune of other serfs, too. Mm. They had, like, the right to deny your right to marry, basically. In uh, future episodes, we will kind of get into what that involved and why. Hmm. But yeah, so you're pretty well controlled. Um, A lot of, most aspects of your life are pretty well circumscribed. However, that being said, it's totally different from how it was for like a black slave in america and black slave in america like you had the over the white overseer like standing right over you and making sure you did nothing except like what they wanted you to for a lot of serfs in russia basically your whole world like i was saying is composed of serfs you know other serfs and the landlord is off somewhere so Depending on the state, you might have a lot of basically freedom of how you spend your time. As long as you pay your dues, whether it's an obrok or barshina, um, you might have a fair, a relative amount of self-determination compared to like a black slave in America. You're not being micromanaged. You're not being micromanaged. Yeah, exactly. So like I said, um, the landlord might be completely off somewhere else. The typical kind of landlord was a noble called uh, Pamishuk, Hmm. and that means like a servitor of the Tsar. Usually it meant military service, so they're often off on military campaigns. And um, the Pamishuk 
basically sees you as a serf as like an abstract number in their ledger. <laughs> when you're an income stream, you're a source of revenue. Yeah, you really get that impression. Yeah, like they never, almost never meet you face to face. And if they do, they're not going to remember your name. <laughs> and what do you do? Yeah. It's basically, it, if you ran into your pangishik, it would be like accidentally meeting your CEO in McDonald's, you yeah. know? Yeah, it was like that. Um, also, the pangishik measures his wealth in terms of souls. That's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, you brag about how wealthy and noble you are. You say, I'm someone of 500 souls, or I'm someone yeah. of 300 souls. Yeah, like 60 souls of surf. Okay, so like I said, there is also such a thing as a free peasant. And that's in air quotes, though, because what a free peasant is, is basically a serf that's not owned by, like, a private landlord. You're actually owned by the state. And so a better term is actually a state peasant. But you probably have more freedom than with, like, an actual serf, like we're talking here. But I was it, it was difficult for me to find exactly what the specific freedoms were that you had over a serf. So a state peasant was another thing that you could be higher in status than a serf. And basically you owed your rent or obligations, whatever, to the government instead of to your landlord. So who do you report to? Who's sort of... Um, I think it's just like the tax collector when it's time. You know, basically, that would be my assumption for huh. a state peasant. I think you have a lot more self-determination. Yeah. Interesting. But you could be transferred to a serf at will, really? basically, by the government. Yes. And Catherine the Great, as well as her successor, uh, I think it was Paul I, uh, both, like, talked and talked about how they, you know, really wanted to reform serfdom, but transferred tens of thousands of state peasants to serfs. Mm-hmm. Was that to, like, settle New Russia and all the I don't remember what the purpose the was, but they were granting them to nobles to, like, give them a source of income to yeah, support I'm them. Yeah, I'm guessing it's a land, it was a land grant. Okay. So... Yeah. Free peasant um, would, would if if their labor if their you know what they're paying for it is going to enrich the state. Yeah. And you're Catherine the Great. Are you benefiting from this directly? And does transferring a whole bunch of them to a bunch of nobles sort of achieve the whole? Hey, we settled this area, but now the nobles are amassing more personal wealth. Or so the government gets taxes from every peasant, serf, and noble, no matter what. Kind of like now, mm-hmm. as I understand it. So you're still getting the taxes, but you also get kind of indirect benefits. You've got your nobles that now kind of owe you, mm-hmm. sort of, and uh, you, you're developing your country in these new regions. So I think, yeah, I think that's the motivation okay, so to transfer. Worthwhile expenditure points. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Infrastructure project. Mm. The uh, proportion of the population made up by serfs varied over the centuries, but generally was between uh, a third and a half of the total population of Russia, with most of the other half being free peasants, and then like a top like tiny minority of basically the one percenters that were nobles and royalty and stuff like that. Meanwhile, if you're a serf, you were the 99%, definitely, and the, the bottom half of the 99%. And if you weren't happy with that, here are the basically the three options that you have. Number one, you could buy your freedom, usually for an enormous sum, and not like a set amount. You had to negotiate with your landlord for you know him or her freeing you, and he might just say no. You 
might not be able to buy your freedom. Number two, your option to escape serfdom, go into the army. That was uh, a term for 25 years, but it was basically considered a death sentence. Very few people would make it through the whole 25 years. If you went into the army, you are likely to never see your family again or come back to your home village ever again. 25 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Longer than the Romans, weren't they 20? I think. And the last option that you had, if you didn't like being a serf, you could run away. Illegally, that's not a legal option, but you could run away. You could try to disappear somewhere in the forests. You could disappear to another estate. Um, or you could try to make it across the border to a different country, like Poland or Moldavia or someplace. And, but people would hunt you. They would look for you, and there were surf hunters. Eventually, you could join a Cossack band, too. You could also, you could also try to join the Cossacks. Yes, and hopefully in the series we will get into the Cossacks and all the crazy <laughs> banditry and wild westness that that involves. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, that is basically serfdom as it was in Russia. Not a fun thing to be. You are basically a hair's breadth away from a slave. And that's just it. Yeah. Did you get to complain about it? You could complain about it to other serfs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. I mean, that, I... that's really the fine distinction for me. <laughs> One mean... other question I had yeah, sure. related to um, how a free peasant still was nominally owned by the state and uh -huh. owed some kind of surplus tax or labor. Yeah. Was the actual legal system sufficiently feudal, do you know, that that would also be nominally true of the nobles, that they owed military service I and think were technically it... all... Everyone was chattel of the czar, but you went down in sort of a pyramidal hierarchy of how much chattel you were and what kind of service you owed. Yes and no. Hmm. No in that I'm sure that the nobles owed less in terms of actual physical goods oh, and stuff. Lord, yes. But... Um, but in terms of mentality, yes. The Pomyshik saw themselves as the slaves of the czar. And that was how their role was originally created. They were... Um, contrasted against a different kind of noble called a vociniki or vocinki or something like that. I forget the exact exact term, but that was a hereditary noble. That was kind of like how you think in England or any anywhere else in Europe, where you lived on your castle and your estate and whatever, and it was just your land by birthright. Yeah. In contrast, a pomyshik was a landholder conditional upon staying in the good graces of the Tsar. Ah. And so you, it could be taken away from you at any point. And you, didn't, you couldn't say, like, but this is mine by right. It's like, nope, nope, you're a permisic. So, yeah, so that wasn't hereditary. Your kids would not necessarily also be permisic. Yeah, at least not originally. Okay. Eventually it came to the point where the two kinds of nobles were basically merged into one, and I think basically permisics became indistinguishable from the other kind. It became hereditary. But that was, that was how the permisics started. And they always maintained that attitude of, like, we are slaves to the Tsar. So with serfdom sort of getting folded into Russia kind of late, was this sort of a thing where it was like, okay, we already had hereditary nobles, but now we have to basically invent this whole second class from scratch? Was that kind of it? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because now let's get into how the serfdom arose in Russia. All right. Yeah. Okay, so moving into the second uh, part of the episode for today, how serfdom got done how <laughs> how you got surfed basically <laughs> you got surfed yeah 
All right. So before we can actually talk about how serfdom came about in Russia, we have to very quick talk about how serfdom came about at all in Western Europe. It started in the late Roman Empire, and this is long after the heyday of the Roman Empire, at least in the, in the West. Um, this is when things were getting just shitty for the Roman Empire, and they're just barely trying to hold things together. There was massive depopulation in the, in the Roman Empire due to oh, all kinds of different things. Barbarian incursions from the north. Um, they were debasing their currency, so the coin wasn't worth anything. Just things were going downhill fast. Okay, And there were other opportunities in other parts of the empire, so they had problems with farmers, the workers, and things mass migrating to other places. And so they started making laws to kind of keep them in place. And also, when you have people moving around, collecting taxes becomes an enormous accounting headache. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. Yeah. because they had a, very much care about. Yes. Yeah. They had a system where you were counted for the region you were in when they took the census. And so if you left that region, what, the, what do we do now, right? Like Your tax base moves, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, it sucked. So they started enacting laws that more and more tied the farmers to the land. And that kind of just carried straight on through to the fall of the Roman Empire into, you know, the kingdoms that came afterward, the Frankish kingdoms. And, uh, but eventually there came a point, this is getting into the Renaissance now at this point, where it started to be actually more economically sensible to just give them their freedom and just have them work for you and you pay them a salary rather than having to pay for their housing, pay for their food, pay, you know, basically everything you need to maintain an actual human being that stays alive enough that they can work for you, you know? And coin had become important, so they wanted peasants to be able to move into the urban centers where the nobles were also investing in the new industry coming up. So both the peasants wanted to move to the urban areas and get coin, and the nobles wanted to do that so that they could pay them in coin and make their industry better. So basically, serfdom, just eventually the, Euro the Western Europeans decided, you know what, this just isn't making sense anymore. Um, it just, it wasn't profitable. It wasn't like a serfdom died out because of moral reasons. It was because of the bottom line, basically. <laughs> I have a sense that in medieval Germany, too, it was sort of the equivalent of running away and joining the Cossacks if you were a peasant was running away and moving to a free town. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, that if That's you lived in a town with town rights... Oh. You were no longer okay. enserfed. Oh. There's actually still a German saying that comes from that, even though it's been interpreted to mean a very different thing. It's city air makes you free. Oh, which okay. literally means okay. if you're in the borders of a town with a town charter, yeah. it makes you free. Huh. But here's the thing. Just at the same time that the Western Europeans are thinking, you know what, serfdom sucks. Let's just get rid of this. It's not working. <laughs> yeah. It did its time. Then that's about the time that Russia's like, Hmm, <laughs> serfdom. So how did that happen? Well, here's what happened. So Western Europe is urbanizing, right? And as they urbanize, they have more and more demand for food. Who's going to supply that food? Hmm, hmm, Eastern Europe, not just Russia at this point, but yeah. Eastern Europe, which is always less populated than Western Europe and now really is, and is also a good agricultural center, is like, ooh, this is an opportunity, very profitable. We want to supply this trade. So for a while there, it was a sweet gig to be a peasant in Eastern Europe, including Russia. 
the grain trade was very profitable. But a little thing called the Black Death... (laughs) What's that? Never heard of it. Yeah, a little thing called the Black Death screwed it all up. Because previously, in Eastern Europe... You would, you would make the conditions really nice for peasants to attract more and more to come and settle your lands and make more grain for you to export and make the profit off of it. But the Black Death caused that whole migration to just kind of die down to a trickle because you didn't want to have plague moving around. Everything was disrupted. And so suddenly in Eastern Europe, you had a, an extreme shortage of labor. Not to mention, you probably also had an extreme shortage of demand, too, for grain. There's not as many people you need to feed. Yeah, although things populations did bounce back yeah. after the after the plague. But, I don't know, that, that was a major kind of turning point. And so, in many of the Eastern European countries, not just Russia, they started kind of like tying the serfs down. That was also sort of the epicenter of where the plague hit in Europe was... Eastern Europe? Yeah. yeah okay, in. so you want to stay away then, yeah. Yeah, it was ground zero in 1348, 1343? I think 1348, but I want to double check. Yeah, I've seen maps of it moving from like some place in eastern Poland or Russia or Belarus and slowly then getting to Venice and circling to... Okay. Thank you, Norwegian England. brown rat. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, um, serfdom moves from Western Europe, kind of like a slow wave across... Europe moving eastward and it makes it to all the kind of states in in the middle there Germany Poland Lithuania Moldavia etc all those different places and eventually makes it to Russia last they're late to the game well they were pretty late to the game and being anything resembling a state let's get to that now so here's the thing about the story that we've told so far we just kind of went through the short version sort of um, but this is what leaves me uneasy about that version So the idea so far is like you need labor, so you tie the laborers down, right? So you can ensure your grain supply to keep it moving west so you have a profit, right? Mm -hmm. Makes sense so far, right? Yeah. But here's the thing that doesn't make any sense to me. So I want to get you guys' opinion. What do you think about this? It might be just that I was raised in like a bourgeois, like capitalist country like America. But the supply and demand kind of aspect of this really confuses me. Because if you are a laborer, and there are very few of you, and you're in high demand. Aren't... Who keeps you tied to the land? Who? Yeah. And how? I was don't one, don't I, you have the most power ever? Yeah. At that situation? Well, that was, means of production. I was wondering that too, actually, because it was a famous thing in urban areas and with craft in Western Europe that uh-huh. wages went up enormously after the Black Death. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so I have heard too. Yeah. So I have heard too. So that really confused me, and that was one of the things that I really wanted to research in this to see you know how how and why this happened and yeah, i have I was, to say i did not really find an answer that i found very satisfying i was kind of scratching my head for the same thing yeah none of my sources death. really um address this directly so we're gonna have to do a lot of wild speculation how's it enforceable <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i don't know it's kind of just like a weird quirk i have a limited theory but even i'm not satisfied with my own theory so so basically my theory is that the encerfdom in Russia of the peasants happened so gradually, bit by bit, that at any given point along the way, the peasants who were slowly getting encerfed, each little bit was like not that bad compared to what was before, that you didn't really have any one defining point where you're like, okay, now we have to rise up and resist. Boiling the frog. 
boiling. Yeah. Okay, I I I'd heard it as boiling a lobster. Oh. But yeah, maybe oh, I know it's, it's prob- a frog. Okay, so it's a frog now. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do it as a frog. So the idea is, um, you put a a frog in like lukewarm water and gradually turn the heat up, and it doesn't really realize that it's getting boiled alive until it's too late. Right? Well, a frog has a porous skin membrane, and a lobster is a crustacean, so it would actually be cooked inside of its shell. So I think the frog would probably be less aware of its situation than a okay. lobster. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. Either way, the point is that the the surf is like the frog, <laughs> gradually getting ensurfed, and before you even realize what's happening to you, you're already boiled alive. So let's find out exactly how that happened. Now we're going to have the long version go into some actual details mm-hmm. of this. Okay. All right. The long version starts with the conditions, how they become ripe in Russia for serfdom to arise. And this is where the Tatar yoke comes in. The Mongols, basically. Yeah. Uh, the, the Tatars were like a tribe within the Mongol confederation or whatever, as I understand it. I think they're interested were... doing some reason. The word just gets thrown around so fast and loose. So what I read was to that mean they... pretty much anyone who lives on a step and rides around on a horse. I think Europeans used the term throughout history. Yeah. To, to describe mean, pretty much any Mongol. Yeah, Mongols or Turks or... Yeah, in fact, I think that the Tatars were a tribe that was conquered by the Mongols and then basically joined the Mongols. Yeah, that's what I don't know is where the word came from. And I if they're originally the Mongol-speaking or Turkic-speaking or... Yeah. No. And how it's used now in contemporary Russia is exactly what you said. It's a tribe of Turkic peoples that yeah. have their own little state and... And sauce. Yeah. So anyway... <sighs> So the Mongols, or Tatars, take your pick, um, didn't bring serfdom to Russia. But what they did do is they they effed up the balance of powers. At that time, there was no such thing as Russia exactly. There were all these kind of independent principalities, the princes of Rus, generally speaking. They're all kind of independent, sort of competed with each other, but were more or less kept each other in check uh, because no one could really get a complete dominance over the region. The Kievians were kind of the big big boys on the block. Mm-hmm. At the time that the Mongols came in, they were already kind of on the decline. But I think so. Yeah, but either way, the Mongols came in and they just screwed everything up. They were relatively hands-off rulers and kept the princes of Rus in power so long as they like paid their, uh, what do you call it, tribute mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the Mongols, right? Again, Which they often had to go and do personally, where the main grand prince would was would have to take a trip over to Mongolia and bring mm-hmm. and bag loads of swag. And, and that that job is going to become very important because one particular principality has to get that job. Mm-hmm. So basically the, the Mongols want tribute from all the different principalities and they don't want to like bother collecting it from everybody. So they need one guy to go to all the principalities, collect it, and then deliver it to the Mongols. And a tiny little backwater little town called Muscovy happens to get that very lucrative contract. Oh, that's where Muscovy ducks come from. Yes. (laughs) In any case, the Muscovites, who were not really the big players on the block before, get fat off of this. All the trade is going through their hands. As a tangent, one of the other really weird things about how the society of the Rus was established Mm -hmm. was there was always a nominal city or principality that was chief mm-hmm. sort of like a high king in mm-hmm. ireland mm-hmm. and all of the um princes were mostly blood relatives 
and they rotated. They played a big game of musical chairs whenever really? anyone died. I didn't know that. So whoever was next in line actually moved and became the prince of the chief city, and everyone else moved her up in... Huh. That sounds annoying as hell. Yeah, this <laughs> big ring of a bunch of cities, and you just switched which city you were the prince of based huh. on where your position was in your own family's hierarchy. That's so bizarre. How did yeah, you accrue power doing that, or was that the idea you didn't exactly? I think kind of that. Huh. So no one got too tied to their estate and their holdings and... Okay. Yeah, it's a weird, weird system. Hmm. So anyway, that was all going on at the time that the Mongols were in power. But the various Mongol khanates started fighting each other and basically just wore themselves out with sort of internal conflicts. And just when they started getting weak, that's when the Muscovites decided to pull a knife out of their cloak. Yeah! Yeah. Stab them! (laughs) And they backstabbed the Mongols and led a revolt among the various princes of Rus against the Mongols. And this was really the first kind of time that they managed to beat the Mongols in battle. And they drove them out of the region. And who gets the great glory of that but the leaders of it, the Muscovites. Right. And so they come out looking like king shit. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. The whole Rus area is freaking huge, right? And before, everybody just had a little piece of the pie. But now they've driven out all the Mongols and just like kind of rode through all of that steppe land in the Russian part of it, like west of the Ural Mountains. Now they've got control of just shit tons of land. Huge tracts of land. Huge tracts of land. And... That sounds like a real effing party, right? But here's the thing. It comes with some enormous headaches. Okay. So you're the leader of Mus- the Grand Prince of Muscovy at this point, mm-hmm. right? You've got two big problems. The first problem is a peasant problem. The second problem is a noble problem. The peasant problem is not enough peasants. Severe depopulation. It was always underpopulated. Then the The Mongols came in and they ravaged everything, burned down cities and stuff. Everybody moved away because they didn't want to get burned. Mongols were also raiding in from Crimea to get slaves to sell in Turkey. Oh, just another reason for why Primacy moved to Moscow, from what I'd always heard, from Kiev. Okay. The steppe land in the area that did have a lot of agricultural productivity Mm -hmm. was much more populated and much more important. Also a lot easier to get to if you're an invading horde on horseback. And therefore, they took the brunt of the blow. Yeah, the... Hugely depopulated after the Mongols came, and all yeah. the little smaller, less prosperous, and less populated places way up north in the woods, like mm-hmm. Muscovy, became yeah, because yeah. they they got hit less. Yeah, a they they were less likely to get hit because they had this sweet contract as the Grand Prince delivering all the tribute, mm-hmm. right? And B, yeah, they weren't they weren't the the sweet place in the first yeah, place. They, they were harder really to get attractive to, and to didn't get. have as much stuff that anyone would want. Yeah. But now you got all of that. Now you own all of that, and it's massively depopulated because you just had a, another war to drive out the Mongols, yeah. right? So not enough peasants. That's the first problem that you got on your hands. You've got all this land, nobody to work it. Second problem is the noble problem. You just had a massive war. What did you fight it with? Lots of grim-looking, scarred, badass mofos that now really want reward from you, and they are very much happy to turn on you if they don't if they think that they're not being treated well as long as the long knives are out hey yeah. exactly yeah 
So you've got these two problems, the peasant problem and the noble problem. What are you going to do with it? So Turn nobles into peasants. <laughs> that wouldn't work. <laughs> the very short reign of Anna the Great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Anna the Unready. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, here's what they did. And this is uh, Ivan the Third, known as Ivan the Great to history at this point. Is he the first one that used the title of Tsar? No. That okay. was the next one after him, Ivan the Fourth, Ivan the Terrible. I, okay, I couldn't remember if it was Ivan the Terrible or if it was his dad. Yes. No. So this is Ivan the Third. He's the one who basically kicks the Mongols out and ends up with these problems in his lap. Okay, so what he does is first he deals with the peasant problem by partially restricting their movement to a two week period after the harvest. You can leave your landlord's estate freely, whether he says you can or not but only during these two weeks of the year. And it's a week before and a week after this festival called Yuri's Day. And it's in November. So it's hmm. after the harvest. Hmm. So it makes sense because you don't want it to be leaving during the harvest during this growing season, right? Can you go look for another landlord in those days? Yeah. This is the start of it. This is, this is turning up the heat on the frog just one notch, right? But it really doesn't seem that bad yet because I've worked annual contracts before. When mm -hmm. I went to japan and also south korea to teach english it was a one-year contract yeah mm -hmm. you know you had to work that year and then then you could choose to leave or not it didn't seem that bad you know or you could choose to renew same thing with the uh, peasant at this point in russian history so your movement is a little bit restricted but on the other hand you're in high demand things don't look that bad for you as a peasant yet so he's also got the noble problem on his hands what does he do about that and we talked about this a little bit before, and where he talked about the hereditary nobles versus the pomyshik, mm -hmm. he starts uh, reorganizing the nobility, having mass executions. What? Of, <laughs> yeah, having mass executions in certain areas of uh, no, the nobility and replacing them with this pomyshik that's a servitor of the czar. And loyal to him. Loyal to him because he can take away their land yeah. at any time he wants. So Conditional. how do you get away with this, though? That is a question that I certainly had. And unfortunately, I just wasn't able to find that. I would be interested, listeners, if you know how he managed to work that out. I think that that would be like a whole other detailed episode. I think to get, I'm sure he had to play nobles off of each other. I'm sure he couldn't just be like launching... A mass war against all nobles. They're just fighting. No, but you, you probably promote. Yeah, you promote yeah, lower you had nobles to and kill higher nobles. Sure. And... So, so basically, he makes he creates a nobility that's now largely loyal to him, and depend for their livelihood on him. But swapping out a power base—that's got to be tricky. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it takes a lot of juggling. Yeah. Now, here is some interesting fallout from this that has to do with serfs and how the mentality of serfdom started to get rolling, the mentality that made it conducive for serfdom to evolve. So the pomyshik that are replacing the old nobles are drawn from all over Russia. It didn't matter where you came from, right? Just you're, you're given this estate that's often someplace nowhere where you ever grew up, maybe not from your same ethnic group, probably not, Maybe didn't even really speak your same dialect or even language. So you have no connection to the people that you now have on your estate working for you. And vice versa. They never knew you. They might never meet you. You might always be off on military service or 
in your, you know, wherever you live in St. Petersburg or Moscow, all you are to each other are distant numbers. Abstractions. Mm -hmm. Abstractions. Consequently, it's much easier to dehumanize that abstraction, that farmer, and you can see how that could easily lead to an ensurfment of a people. It's kind of like how we in the West today think about the people who make our iPhones, the people who make sure. our shoes, our t-shirts. <laughs> it's much easier to be okay with sweatshops when it's over there when it's somewhere. you ever encounter. Yeah, yeah, you never have to face those people face to face. Yeah. Thank you for working for five cents an hour. <laughs> yeah. So these measures that Ivan the Great take to solve his peasant problem and the noble problem actually work. There's an economic upturn after this. Grain production on the lordly lands triples in the Novgorod region, for example, and I'm sure there were similar upturns in other regions. And uh, there's actually a Western traveler to Russia that is quoted in a book by Peter Colchin. And in 1553, this tra traveler says of Russia, the country between Moscow and Yaroslavl is very well replenished with small villages, which are so well filled with people that it is wonder to see them. The ground is well stored with corn, which they carry to the city of Moscow in such abundance that it is wonder to see it. Hmm. Yeah. Someone was hungry. <laughs> he's like, bring me my dinner. Yeah. yeah. That, he's, a, he's a tourist there, so he's also buying the, the tchotchkes. You're, you guys there are making in your surf huts. <laughs> but it's not all peaches and cream for the peasants, though. So the prosperity that allows trade to flourish and urban populations to grow at this time also creates more demand for food, and consequently, many of the Pomyshik start introducing barshina, labor, in addition to just demanding obrok. So now you have to do both for them. Mm -hmm. You have to pay and do enforced labor. Yeah, exactly. Suck. Yeah, both things. And that's basically, you know, it's like a new, you know, president comes into the company and is just looking at, you know, just the graph on the wall and it's like, how can we increase, you know, production and increase profit or whatever? And he's in front of the board of directors trying to sell them with this new way. It's like, well, let's also have them do barcina, you know? Just a bunch of bearded guys with fuzzy hats and big robes. Yeah, I mean, Standing huh? around hand on their pommel of their sword, looking at a whiteboard. It's a great <laughs> yeah, image. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, one hand on the pommel of their sword and the other on the clicker for the slideshow. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, things are getting a little bit hotter for the peasants now, but it still doesn't seem that bad. It gets worse, though. You see, the peasant problem isn't evenly distributed between all the different areas owned by these pomishik now. Some areas are more hard up for labor than other areas, and consequently, the nobles of those areas are much more willing to uh, offer good conditions to entice peasants away from other nobles sure. uh -huh. in order to get them to come to their areas and work their fields. And so the nobles in all the different areas become extremely competitive and they come up with all kinds of interesting little tricks to either keep your peasants or get peasants away from somebody else. If you wanted to keep your peasants, there were a couple of things you could do. One of them is loan your peasants money 
and then refuse to let them leave until they pay you until back. they pay you back. This sounds like town. the beginning of some sort of great German board game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I want to see really this. <laughs> Screw settlers of Catan. <laughs> yeah, I guess settlers there's you of in Southeast Serfdom. Russia. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing you can do is charge high exit fees for the serf to leave your estate. And they, a lot of times they did both. Now, if you were the other kind of noble who was much more hard up for labor, you had tricks of your own. Namely, just go ahead and pay those debts off for the peasant. We'll buy you out of your old phone contract. Exactly. <laughs> and pay their exit fees. It's just like, hey, you don't like Google? Come over to Apple. We'll pay for your flight over. Yeah. <laughs> Come for, go, go to... Come to Cupertino. Is that where Apple is? I think, I think, I think so. Yeah. I only know because my That's phone always is... always comes default on the weather for Cupertino, yeah. California. Is that a whole flight from Mountain View? So anyway, it was basically like that. Yeah. So they're constantly competing and doing these kind of dirty trick tricks to each other. And also the mentality that's conducive to serfdom evolves even further because you get this really proprietary attitude toward your serfs. They're like, these are my serfs. You can't have them. You know, this is my bank account. Basically, own these is serfs. What it, how it yeah. Is the mentality up. that's developing here. So again, with um, the landowners being possibly away on military service or, or, you know, not actually directly managing the estate, do they just get their proxies to sort of aggressively enforce all these for them? Or are they acutely aware of, Oh, that other landowner who's also not on his estate is honing in on my turf and my um, serfs, my surf and turf. You have proxies because this is like a huge corporation, basically. Yeah. So you've got this big administration thing. But in any bureaucracy, you can, you know, you can work the system and so-and-so looks the other way and so-and-so looks the other way. And people would, nobles would come back from military service and be like, hey, where'd all my serfs go? <laughs> that was a real thing that happened hmm. a lot. Um, yeah, that, and that was a big problem, especially for the, the nobles who had lands more in the original Russian traditional heartland, like around Moscow and those areas, um, which is where serfs were being drawn away from to settle the new areas that used to be under Tatar or Mongol control. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's developing. Get, things are getting a little bit hotter again, okay? But here's the thing. It still doesn't look that bad because what's the situation? You're in high demand, and you've got nobles throwing money at you from both sides. You've got nobles on one side saying, here, I'll loan you a bunch of money. And you've got nobles on the other side saying, I'll pay off all your money and pay for you to come to my estate. Come work for me. It doesn't really sound that bad yet. Right? Again, based on your Google Apple analogy, being if you're a programmer, yeah, starting right. your career, it's the greatest kind of wage slavery ever until you <laughs> hit 45, can't learn the new languages anymore, and no one wants you because they all want to hire the 20-year-olds. Yvonne's yeah, a terrible peasant. You know those Ruby on Rails. Yeah. Okay. So, and in fact, like I said, okay, so it, it doesn't look like it's so bad for you yet as for the peasant. It actually, at this point in time, starts to look like it's getting worse and worse for the nobles. And what point of time, just to situate a little bit, are we talking here? Is this now? Like now 1600s we're in, or... Yeah, we're like late 1500s, early 1600s okay. going, going in here. So Ivan III, the Great, kicks the bucket. Ivan IV, the, the terrible, terrible, comes into power. And I bet everything's great. 
And he starts a process of really centralizing things under himself. Yeah. And he totally Game of Thrones it, too. Well, he and kills a shit ton of boyars. Exactly. How and it... how do you manage to... Yeah, the boyars, the nobles, right? Yeah. How do you even manage to do that? But he does. Not only that, so he establishes basically the great-granddaddy of the KGB, something called the Oprichnina. Oh, yes. Which is this secret police, loyal to the Tsar, who go around terrorizing the nobility, and they run around, they wear all black, riding black horses. Nazgul. Exactly. Yeah. They're like Nazguls of the Tsar, you know? So, <laughs> And he just creates this intimidating climate where nobody dares say anything against him because they think they're going to get offed. And so it really, at this point in history, it looks like things are bad for the nobles, not so much for the peasants, although their movement is getting more and more restricted as, you know, you know and the, the mentality is developing, as we said. Then, then after that is when things really start to go bad. Ivan IV plunges Russia into something called the Livonian War, which is fought against not just Poland, Lithuania, not just Sweden, but both of them. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that seems and, like something you should avoid. Yeah. <laughs> that causes massive disruptions. It's a huge drain on the economy. And, of course, any time that you've got ravages of war going on you get people moving around trying to flee it's like the syrian refugee problem and all of a sudden back to the depopulation problem this war causes massive disruptions you've got peasants running around everywhere trying to you know go to safer places and find more opportunities so to clamp down on this uh some years start to be forbidden years where even on that two-week period around yuri's day even then, you can't move. Forbidden. This is done in 1581. There's a ban on movement in some years where you just can't move at all. But this still doesn't effectively stem the mass migrations. And in 1588, an English traveler to Russia by the names of Giles Fletcher writes this. He says, Many villages and towns uninhabited, the people being fled all into other places by reason of the extreme usage and exactions done upon them. So, yeah, things are getting pretty crappy in Russia at this point. And documents from the time show that the amount of land around Moscow that is lying fallow and uncultivated is estimated at 84%. God. 84% of the potentially, you know, grain-producing field land is not being used for anything. Well, so that's going to disrupt your economy. Just a little. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we're back to the peasant problem, right? In 1592, Ivan the Terrible's successor, Feodor I, makes the ban on movement uniform throughout all of Russia. And he also impo- imposes a five-year search limit on runaway peasants. The five-year search limit That's actually kind of a very contentious thing that he does among nobles because what that means is after five years, if you're a runaway serf, they can't bring you back anymore. Right. In whose interest would that be? Well. Which kind of landholder? I'll say that. One that could just be given more serfs by the czar. Well, that. Yeah, because if you inherited an estate by proxy But let's say the Tsar is just not going to do that. So the kind of uh, landowner that would benefit from having a search limit is one that's more hard up for peasants than anybody else. Because one of the dirty tricks that they start doing is they just secretly harbor runaways 
until the search limit is up, and then then they're fine. Oh, so it's a way of illicitly accruing serves. Yes. It's like, you can hide out my place. Hey, yep. clean out the garage. So the no... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the nobles in the south and southeast that really need peasants, they start arguing for short search limits, like the five years, whereas the other ones want really long search limits or no search limits at all. How is this not a board game, seriously? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So... The water is getting a little bit hotter and hotter, right? So that's like an action card. You just play search limits. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, search limit. Yeah, and it's supposed. Yeah. Finally, the Liv- Livonian War concludes. With Whew. Livonian werewolves. That is... <laughs> Sorry. That part's over. But then after that, an even worse period comes, known in Russian history called the Time of Troubles, mm-hmm. in which there's no clear leader. You have czars, but there's all these pretenders who are fighting. and False Dimitri? Yes, many false Dimitris. Oh, that's right. There are like three false Dimitris. What? At least. Yeah. How do you get one false Dimitri? How do you get three? <laughs> I all think these... that's a time for another podcast. I just wanted to say false Dimitri on the air. Well, you can check it out on the Lesser Bonapartes. They have um, one of their... Carlin's, which is their longer episodes that you have to pay for, but it's a good one. It's worth it. They talk all about the time of trouble, so check that out. But anyway, yeah, so it's a, it's a time of basically anarchy. So things get even worse, and it basically flushes everything down the toilet. So anyway, it's like hitting the reset button. Now you've got the peasant problem, you've got the noble problem again. Things go back to square one. And to make things worse, in the middle of all of this, there are three years of crop failures in a row. 1601, 1602, and 1603 all have crop failures, leading to massive famine. Yeah. So, that's not going to help. Russian history. <laughs> and then it got worse. <laughs> <laughs> now, for the first two years of it, the Tsar at the time, a barely in control government led by Boris Gudunov, I believe. That sounds right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um lifts the ban of the same name lifts the ban on peasant movement um presumably to sort of ease the the proneness to unrest basically Mm -hmm. just to kind of appease the people and maybe also to appease some of the nobles who actually wanted that but then in 1603 uh, the third year of crop failure they impose all forbidden years from now on every year from now on is going to be a forbidden year where you cannot move so at this point, you're really, you know, in deep shit. You're in hot water yeah. as a as a peasant here. Now, there's no time that you can ever legally leave your estate. So I guess Boris's initial measures weren't good enough. Boris, good, good enough. Good enough. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry or sorry. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm. Very nice. Very I think nice. that joke a little false. <laughs> oh God. Okay, so anyway, illegally you can still run away, and given how mad Maxi Russia's has got by this point, it's really not that hard to do. Sure. But the point is, you are very nearly a serf in all but name at this point. Oh, and as a peasant now, what's your perspective on this? Are you going to rise up at this point in history and say, no, you're not going to serf me? You got basically like what's the name of the Fury Road guy with the, like the skull Morton basket? Morton Joe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's basically who you would have to go to to say I don't want to be a serf. He's just gonna be like squash, right? <laughs> so what are you gonna do? You're just gonna hunker down and hope for things to get a little better. And at every point in the at along the way, that's the choice that you're faced with. Just wait it out, hope that it gets a little better. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. 
So you're hungry, there's armies all over hell, and you're scared. You're just going to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So Russia does come out of the time of troubles um, with the rise of the Romanov dynasty, which makes things a little more organized at least. But a blow comes to the peasants again in 1637, when the search term is lengthened to nine years. And then it's lengthened again in 1642 to 10 years, or 15 if the peasant has run away with the help of a lord. Really? Yes. Ah. Interesting modifiers. Yes. yes. And by this point, you are basically clawing to get out of the tub because it's basically, you're about to be cooked through. The final moment finally arrives in 1649. And it's not even something to do with, with the peasants. There just happens to be urban riots. And somehow this triggers the assembly of something called the Assembly of the Land. And they just kind of take the opportunity to make a code of laws that specifies and spells out exactly what the relationship has become between the estate owner and the peasant. And they basically codify serfdom into law. And they say no more search limits at all anymore. Permanently, you're stuck. Yeah. And that is where historians really mark the beginning of official serfdom in Russia. But it's been this gradual, gradual, bit by bit, turning up of the heat until you find yourself just boiled alive. Yeah. So that was it. You got surfed. Yes. (laughs) When you put it in perspective, it's such a gradual thing. It doesn't seem like such a, oh, why did you adopt this so late? That's zany. It sort of seems a little more... Yeah, I mean, there were economic reasons all the way along the... Well, you know, by the 1660s, which was just, what, like um, 10 years later, nobles were already buying and selling peasants, even without selling the land. You just transfer them, like I was saying before. Yeah. And by the late 17th century, they were even known to win or lose them at cards. <laughs> I would be upset. <laughs> yeah, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Right? You're just a number. You're just a number. You, you are equivalent to a chip on the table. So... Yeah. Also, I don't know if you really would be upset, because you'd probably win or lose the estate along with it. You get to keep your home, you're still paying the same rent, you're just paying it to... Yeah, 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 yeah. just be like... Your life probably doesn't change at all. Transfer of higher-up management, and yeah. you're like, mm-hmm. eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Again, faceless from the other perspective, right. too. So there you have it. It was a long process, gradual losses for the peasant... In no one defining moment where you're like, we must now stand up for our freedom. Surf's up. Surf's up. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But little little by little, you find yourself as a surf. And that's, the, that's how it happened. So just a few notes by way of epilogue. Some areas, like I said, never got surfed. Siberia? Nope. Caucasus? Nope. It's mainly the area that you think of as the European part of Russia today. The breadbasket. Yep, the breadbasket and the industrial, the soon-to-be industrial areas around, like, Moscow and that region. And was Siberia the case for that, also to encourage settlement, mostly? I do not know the history of Siberia. I know that that whole, like, north of Asia, stretching all the way to the Pacific, that part would eventually become Russia, but not... And around the the same time as this. It was in throughout the 1500s and was finishing up. In the mid-1600s. But the history of that is was something more to do with some clever kind of deals in the fur trade, yeah. more than what we've been talking about, yeah, so far as I know. Yeah, were princes or kingdoms that way further west? I mean, east? I, I just, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. No. But anyway, how did this particular dead idea die? Just super quick. 
Basically, it lasted for about 200 years in Russia until 1861, mid-19th century. And by this point, everybody, including the Russians, knew that it was awkward. It was an anachronistic system. Everywhere else in Europe, the serfs have been freed. Western Europe got it much earlier. The other Eastern European countries got freed basically when Napoleon came through. Sure. But Napoleon never completely conquered Russia, as you may recall. (laughs) And so serfdom still stuck around in Russia. Let's do a campaign in winter. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Um, And so by the mid-19th century, Russia was still basically feudalistic, still had serfs, and they looked like this... like basically awkward kid at the table with pimples on their face just like what is this guy still doing here having serfs right jimmy could you stop wearing your pokemon shirt to every family (laughs) dinner yeah well what's more russia gets its ass wiped in the crimean war and is really smarting and basically wants to improve its international reputation by making some progressive moves that would look good in you know in the eyes of other european powers and so they're more motivated to then make these progressive changes and free the serfs. Is getting your ass wiped really a phrase? <laughs> I've heard of getting your ass whooped. I've heard of getting your ass handed to you. <laughs> well, this right. is when well, you, you know, you, you, you're so bad at it that somebody has to gently take a cloth and wipe you because you really messed up. Maybe it's just in Russia when you had a serf to wipe. Okay. Actually, that might have happened. Spread your cheeks, Excellency. That might have happened because right before emancipation comes, word ha- word gets out that emancipation is just over the horizon. And they hear, the nobles hear, that the village serfs that typically would work in the fields will get the right to buy land from the nobles and the government is kind of going to grant them loans to finance this for them. But household serfs, a particular kind of serf that doesn't work in the field, but it's kind of like servants in the noble's Your household, valid? is only going to get their freedom, is not going to get the right to buy land. So what do you do to protect your economic interests? Everybody's Make a household serf. Everyone's a household serf. Exactly. Yes. And so you get these households just swelling with servants doing what? I don't know. Maybe you have one person just to wipe your ass. See, this one, Ivan only polishes my left shoe, and Peter, he, he does my right shoe. That's the system. Don't interfere. <laughs> I kind of think that's not that far yeah. off from what might have happened. But anyway, so that's kind of like a last-ditch effort to kind of save their skins. And then what? you have to teach them all French, and it just gets weird. <laughs> yeah, because the nobles are actually speaking French. Yeah. That, yeah. that was the fashionable language, yeah. Why don't the nobles rise up and say, no, I want to keep my serfs? Well, here's the thing. All these years, in order to maintain themselves at the level that they consider themselves as nobles to be at, uh, the level of grandiosity that they want to live at, in order to do that, a lot of them have gotten deep into debt. And about a third of all noble estates and two-thirds of all serfs owned by nobles are mortgaged to the state. So the state actually owns those nobles, just like when you mortgage a house, the bank actually owns your house. So basically, there was nothing that the, that the nobles could really do. Yeah. So this is point. kind of delusional, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, the state was finally like, okay, let's give them freedom. And that's what happened in 1861. 
Alexander the second. Second, yeah. Yes. Grants emancipation. It doesn't really go that well for the serfs. Surprise, surprise. They don't end up with enough land to really support themselves oftentimes. They get in deep into debt. They can't pay back their loans that they got from the government to buy their land. But nevertheless, they get their freedom. Yes. And that is how serfdom dies. That's the end of this dead idea. Hmm. Yep. So, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's it's interesting seeing the perspective of, like, just how it comes about but it's it's just weird realizing it, it it was the way you described it it's a gradual process to actually get to a point of serfdom and then serfdom itself is only there for 200 odd years and then mm -hmm. just dies out it's weird yeah yeah and still dies out eight years before slavery ends in america so they the russians beat the americans to the freedom game and space <laughs> <laughs> and space yeah 1869 was the amendment? I believe so. Is that not right? No, no, no. Was, well, no, because... Wait. Let's find no, out. No, I'm not at all sure that's wrong. I'm a little surprised by it. The, mm. the Emancipation Proclamation was 63, but that wasn't the formal ending of all-American slavery, obviously. Wasn't it, though? Hmm? Wasn't it, though? No, you could, exclusively you could just still be a slave in a border state. There were still slaves in, like, Missouri. West Virginia and Maryland. <laughs> this is the part where Americans look up their own history. Exactly. Um, after expounding at length at, on yes. the history of other yeah. lands. <laughs> How's our international yeah. following again? <laughs> 1864, ratified by the House on January 31st, 1865. See, I was okay. pretty sure that was it was... the 13th Amendment, which actually abolished slavery Yeah, I was pretty sure, yes. Oh, okay. yes. In the Confederacy. Okay, so, they, so they, the Russians still beat the Americans by three years to freedom. Four, actually, depending on how you're... 1861 and 1864, right? It was ratified in 65. Oh, okay. So, all right, there you go. <laughs> okay, anyway, well, that's it for this episode, folks. Join us next time as we explore the world of the surf commune. And we're going to do it in a fun way. We're going to do it actually as a role-playing game. Can I so... cross-class? Surf <laughs> Paladin, please. Surf Paladin. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Uh, Nick and Anna, thanks for being on the show once again. Thanks for having us. Mira will be back next time. <laughs> Um, listeners, write us in if you're liking this series. Is our audio coming across clearer, finally, or is it just weird now? Let us know at deadideaspod at gmail.com. Do you have a dead idea you'd like us to explore? If so, we want to hear about it. You can find us at deadideas.net or on social media at, at deadideaspod. And remember, you can support the show by going to www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. And in gratitude for your contribution, we have a variety of great perks, including getting your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Depending on the region where you live, you could also support us with bags full of handicrafts and or tchotchkes. Yeah. And you, corn. You can pay your dues in kind, yes. <laughs> and we may transfer you to another estate, but that's a whole other issue. Another podcast, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. 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 <laughs> transfer you, like you as listeners to another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. See you next time, everybody. Hey, everybody. Visit our website at www.deadideas.net for a custom map of Russia created by Adam McKethern. Thank you once again, Adam. You will also find pics, references, and more at our website. And also, of course, don't forget to show your support at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod where you can get great perks like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing.